I, I'm sad. I'm just, I, I really, I think about all of the, the factories and I think about the lives that these poor, I mean, if you, you don't even want to call them lives, they're just in these like cages suffering and then they're tortured and killed. It makes me lose faith in humanity, honestly. Welcome back to the Plant-Based News Podcast. I have a very exciting guest joining me on today's episode. It's none other than American actor and director Paul Wesley, best known for his lead role as Stefan Salvatore in the drama series The Vampire Diaries. Paul has been an advocate for animals for many years. Speaking up against the unnecessary suffering of animals over the years, he has participated in events and supported activist organizations such as Mercy for Animals and Farm Sanctuary. In 2019, Paul and his wife Ines de Ramon took part in the Game Changers New York premiere, sharing their support for vegan athletes who promote the message that maintaining top-level athletic performance is possible on a vegan diet. More recently, he has used his platform, particularly on social media, to promote veganism and to inspire others to make changes to their diet. Paul is among the many celebrities who in recent years has been more and more vocal about being vegan, encouraging their fan base to follow suit. He currently has around 12 million followers on Instagram alone, where he often shares his insights on following a vegan lifestyle. Paul has shared that going vegan was one of the best decisions of his life, so I am thrilled to have this chance to sit down with him today and find out more about this journey. I'm Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast. Well, what a great pleasure to sit down with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Animal agriculture is an interrelated web of oppression at the core of our modern food system. It is a world of harm that the federal government subsidizes to the tune of more than $38 billion every year. The agribusiness lobby writes the laws and policies that perpetuate these injustices, and our tax dollars fund it every step of the way. The true cost of cheap meat, eggs, and dairy is catching up to us. The system is flawed, causing a world of harm that can no longer be ignored. Starting with the 80 billion animals slaughtered worldwide for food each year. When we imagine a farm, we envision the idyllic world we show our children in picture books with big red barns and imaginary barnyards where chickens roam and pigs bathe in big muddy puddles. Or the rolling green pastures shown in meat and dairy advertising where herds of cows graze happily in the sunshine. But this isn't reality. Most animals raised for meat, dairy, or eggs in the U.S. are born into a factory farming system where large numbers of animals are kept indoors and out of sight, packed into cages, pens, or warehouses as tightly as possible for the greatest profit. They endure unimaginable suffering. And much is hidden from the unsuspecting public by agriculture gag laws designed to silence would-be whistleblowers by punishing them for recording footage of what goes on in animal agriculture. So before we dive into all the amazing things you've been doing with your life in recent years, we'd love to hear your vegan story because we get so many different people on this podcast, medical experts, nutritionists, celebrities and actors and musicians like yourself. We just want to kind of really look at people's past and understand the stories in which led people to the vegan lifestyle. And a lot of the time, the stories are very similar, but I'd love to hear it from your perspective. How did you discover the vegan and plant-based lifestyle? Was it gradual? Or was it an overnight thing? How did it happen for you? 
It was very gradual for me. I intuitively was very, you know, I always loved animals as a kid. Intuitively, I didn't think it was right to, I had, you know, my moral justifications as a child, you know, I didn't think it was right to eat uh, mammals, right? So I hadn't eaten cows or pigs or anything of that nature in, in God knows how long. But I, I found some justification for dairy and for, you know, fish. And, uh, you know, that was really just lack of knowledge, lack of awareness, um, just not, not, not understanding. I, I would say not being fully just cognizant of everything. I sort of allowed the, the industry to sort of make me feel, uh, the food industry to make me feel like um, it was okay. I don't know when I had the aha moment. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I have a very good friend who's a vegan, uh, who has been vegan for over a decade. And I remember sort of talking to him and feeling silly when I tried to justify the fact that I was eating fish and my moral justification for, you know, this. That. And I just remember like arguing and then just feeling really silly. My family has been, um, my mother is, uh, is vegan. One of my sisters is vegan. The, uh, my other sister is vegetarian. So it's, you know, it was not so difficult for me in terms of the way I was raised either. Mm, amazing. And as you were saying, there wasn't a, a particular aha moment, but no. were there films or podcasts or books other than your conversation with your friend? What were some of the sort of triggers that you remember along yeah. the journey that kind of like, I guess, pushed you along? One, I just remember after watching Cowspiracy. Do you think there should be any concern of us making this documentary? Of course. If you don't realize right now that you're putting your neck on the chopping block, you know, <clears throat> you, you better take that camera and throw it away. It's an environmental disaster that's being ignored by the very people who should be championing. That was incredibly impactful. Instagram has, all, has its downfalls, but I have to say, I am so you know, grateful to be following people like uh, yourself, Plant-Based News, Earthling Ed, you know, for example. I still haven't read his new book. You know, there's, there's so many, you know, I followed Gene Bauer, uh, who's now become a friend of mine. And I'm just friends with now, you know, a lot of activists. And so I learned so much now through social media. And, uh, and that's the one blessing of social media, I suppose. Mm. Mm, it's incredible. I mean, it's such a powerful tool. Obviously, it does a lot of good. It can also spread a lot of misinformation. Of but course. what it's done is it's allowed us to get inside these facilities, these slaughterhouses, right. these factory farms, where previously industry had everything very, very hidden. Obviously, yeah. you know, uh, over the years, I've, I've been really touched and obviously inspired by your advocacy for animal rights. Being an actor, there's obviously a balance that has to be struck there because obviously being very outspoken about anything to do with social justice can sometimes be at odds with yeah. that type of industry. Mm -hmm. Have you experienced any pushback from your peers or the industry mm -hmm. at large about your sort of, you know, outspokenness towards animal rights? Very much so. Um, very much so. And I'm very cognizant of it. Uh, I am very aware. First of all, a lot of my friends are not vegan. And when I say that I'm vegan, they kind of, it, it feels uh, almost like an attack um, in many ways. And so 
I don't talk about it too much around certain friends of mine who have I've been friends with for many years, but they all follow me on social media. And I know that it rubs them the wrong way. And I'm very aware of it. Also, you know, frankly speaking, you know, I've gotten calls from, uh, you know, unnamed individuals who will say, hey, you know, I want to put you up for this campaign, but they won't work with anyone that, you know, supports PETA, you know, for example, you know, it's, if it's a fashion label, um, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, support PETA, you know, they have some issues with PETA. So, you know, I just want to get your stance on that. And I, and I say, look, I do support PETA. You know, what do you want me to say? I support PETA. I'm not going to pretend to be someone I'm not. So I am very aware of it. But, you know, the reality is there are so many friends of mine who are climate activists, right? Like climate change activists. And they're like pushing their agenda, thankfully, and in, in, in talking about recycling and talking about, you know, driving electric and, you know, et cetera. And it's, you know, I'll say to them, hey, did you know that, you know, also if you reduce your meat consumption or eliminate your meat consumption, that's going to have an incredible impact on the environment. And it falls on deaf ears. They become very aggressive towards me. And it's just, I, I, I don't understand why I should be, I, it's okay for me to to talk about climate change. That's not ridiculed online, but yet it's not okay for me to talk. Why do I have to feel like a pariah? I'm still fighting for something good, right? I'm fighting for, for justice. I'm fighting for a greater good. I'm not pushing uh, some sort of, you know, political agenda. I'm just trying to fight for these animals that have, don't have a voice and also for the devastation that it's creating all around the world. It's very interesting. And I think it's mostly because of the fact that the climate crisis or what I'm often, often calling now the nature crisis is that it's an existential crisis. It's going on out there up in the sky in the weather. It's kind of nothing to do with me here in my nice little house on my little plate. I want to be able to eat whatever I want and don't come and tell me what I should and shouldn't eat. Uh, and so veganism, obviously, on plant-based lifestyles encroach on people's personal freedoms, right? And so when we as advocates start to talk about it, people feel threatened. You know, there is this sort of cognitive function that goes on in the brain that when a person feels like their core beliefs are being threatened, human beings actually become more narrow minded. And it's like a biofeedback, you know, neuropinephrine, this neurotransmitter actually increases in the brain when a person feels threatened, and they actually go the opposite way. So the more we push, the more people kind of go the other way. We're hardwired to do this, which is so fascinating. And I always say to people, you know, the best form of advocacy is actually not to push people towards veganism, but to simply show them the way rather than trying to tell them what to do. And obviously, a lot of people who go vegan for the first time, they become very passionate, very determined to tell everyone. And then, of course, you know, people go in the opposite direction. They don't really want to listen. You know, that's very useful advice. I'm not so good at that. I'm not so patient. You know, it's funny, a lot of the people that I really admire are very um, sort of, they, they lead with example, as opposed to just sort of uh, verbal, uh, you know, onslaught. I, uh, I'm not so good at that. I mean, I try to lead by example, but I'm not my tactic is usually like, hey, did you know that? Da -da 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 -da, you know, and it never <laughs> works. So it's actually good for me to hear this from a biological like perspective. Yeah, I think I think, you know, people are very good at um, some people have got remembering facts. I, I love facts and information. And I've learned over the years that the more facts I throw at people, the more they're likely to switch off. 
And in fact, my parents, who I often talk about on the podcast in the early 60s, I never thought in a million years that my mum and dad would ever go vegan. But in the early 60s, they four years ago, they did uh, Veganuary and they've been vegan ever since. Wow. My dad, my dad is the last person on earth. It was like, you know, Trump got into power, Brexit happened, my dad went vegan. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I felt like I had slipped into a parallel universe. But that, <laughs> yeah. but that, yeah, but that happened because I was patient and I just sent my dad loads of like great recipes and I kept sending him health information. And I kind of stayed away from the very heavy animal rightsy stuff and the sort of, you know, the activist stuff because I knew it would kind of trigger his behavioral tendencies to go, oh, no, I'm not interested in that. So I'm not going to listen. You know, I found that the one thing I found is that we can all, I, I, I don't say we can all, but most people can agree that industrialization of a sentient being isn't right. Like there's a lot of proponents that will say, you know, well, humans are meant to yada, yada. And I could always just say, you know, look at the food system look at what's like most people, if they're aware of the food system, which a lot of people aren't because they look, you know, they go to, you know, McDonald's and they see a, a cheeseburger and they don't, they just see a, a nice picture and food. They don't see the process. And if you really, I really believe that if you, if people can become more um, cognizant and educated on the industrialization of, of these uh, animals, um, I think that's when people can maybe make the connection. I think a lot of people just don't make that connection. No, absolutely true. On making the connection, though, obviously, you know, going back to, to being vegan, you obviously, as an actor, playing some some well-known roles especially characters <laughs> especially characters that are not particularly vegan in the sense that you know they like humans <laughs> though you know humans could do with a few apex predators on this planet so <laughs> it's a shame vampires don't actually exist but <laughs> you know all jokes aside like being in the film industry and the movie industry like how has it been with being vegan you know what has it been like being on set do people provide vegan food for you what happens where there's props and things you know, do, do you have to request stuff or is it has it been quite difficult with things like leather and animal products and stuff like that yeah i mean i i the i will say most people are really i mean look i'm in a privileged position where if i'm on a set you know i'm not you know i'm in a position where people are trying to help me right because you know the actor is considered you know a part of a key part of the production right so i'm not necessarily uh you know the, so i i'm in a position where things are pretty easy for me. I mean, I was in Romania shooting a miniseries and, you know, I, I, they went out of their way to make me a vegan lunch every day. And, you know, they were really sweet about it. Obviously, I don't have as much control over certain aspects. You know, um, uh, for example, there was a dinner scene. You know, this is a period piece and there was literally steak in front of me. And it was in front of everyone that was in the scene. I hadn't consumed, I haven't consumed, you know, steak and God knows over, I mean, who knows how long now, over, well over a decade. In any case, I was really upset because I knew that this was, you know, this was a life that was taken to be used as a prop. But nobody else really saw it that. There was nothing I could do at that point. It was in front of me and we did the scene. I didn't vocalize it, but it was actually a really tough moment for me, honestly. I've spoken to many people who've, whose careers or work that they do, whether they're chefs or cooks or bakers working in various industries where they have to work with animal products because obviously the industry that they work with hasn't really moved forward enough. I, I, I see in the future, you know, props like steaks and animal products 3D being 3D printed. 
Personally, I think the future of meat is a plant-based 3D printed type meat or a cell-based meat. On those innovations, like, have you had any exposure to them at all in your travels? What are your thoughts and feelings about the future of meat? Because obviously people want to eat it. We can't stop people eating meat, but you know, would you eat it? Have you tried it? What are your thoughts on it? I am 100% on your side. I think it is um, the future. I think that it's the answer. Uh, I can't quite understand why anyone who is an animal rights advocate would be would not be a proponent of cell based, uh, you know, or three D whatever, you know, lab grown meat. First of all, I would I would eat it just to support it. I don't really I don't like for example I don't miss the taste of cheese. Frankly, like I just don't. I, I it, once you get away from it, you kind of smell it. I was just in Switzerland, right? And there was like a, uh, we went, you know, there was like the smell of fondue everywhere. I, I don't miss it. Kind of pussy smell. Yeah, it's just, I just, <laughs> that's literally what I, I just smell like, like, like living being pus. Like, I don't see it as like this, like, oh mm, my God, I miss this. Like, I just don't. And so, but in any case, so it's not like I'm going to go out of my way to buy like cheese that's, you know, because I don't particularly like it, but if I did like it, I would 100,000% support it. I personally think that it's our responsibility as plant-based um, uh, advocates or vegan, whatever, to, to help this industry gain momentum. Because if we're not doing it, then I don't know who else is. With regards to kind of what we eat, you're obviously a busy man. You probably travel a lot, doing a lot of things, juggling lots of things. How do you maintain health because it's very easy to slip into that junk food space especially now there's so much vegan junk food now how do you stay physically fit and healthy and on top of your game uh, in a world that seems to be oversaturated now with vegan cookies and ice cream and pizza and everything which we didn't have 10 years ago no first of all it's not easy i mean i i, I it is and it isn't i i look at it from a very simple perspective whenever i start feeling like i'm eating too many processed foods or i feel like i'm not i just go okay what can i get from the earth it's that, it's that simple. Like, what can I get that's literally something I can... So if I'm at the airport and I'm feeling, you know, malnutrition in any way, I'm like, okay, apple, banana, go to this, you know, shop and say, hey, can I get a side of, you know, whatever you want to call it? You know, it's always like, I try my best to, to just eat whatever I can find, whether it's, a, it's nuts, you know, something that if I was on an island, I could forage, you know, I mean realistically, I probably wouldn't forage anything and I would starve to death. But in that sense, you know, no, no, it's, it's such good advice. I, I think a lot of people are battling with it. And actually, the, you know, the meat industry is using this against the vegan kind of movement a lot in the media recently. They've been saying vegan doesn't equal healthy. You know, vegan is dangerous because it's full of preservatives and it's all these different food colorings and, and additives. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, to me, I just remind people that vegan just means animal free. That's it. That's all it means. It's an animal free food. It doesn't mean it's healthy, uh, that we need to focus on the fact that if you are a vegan, you've decided to choose this lifestyle style that we are choosing foods that are free from the exploitation of animals however health is a choice you know if you want to eat healthy food whole food plant-based great do it you're going to live a long healthy and vibrant life but if you want to eat junk food and that's your personal choice yeah, and, i mean i mean look at know. look at obesity in america it's it's not because we're vegan <laughs> Obesity in America is a byproduct of a lot of these meats that cost a dollar ninety nine for you know God knows what you're eating. Fast food, saturated fat, processed, who knows what. And and you know, frankly, a lot of the foods that are processed have 
all sorts of animal products in them, you know, milk, this, and, you know, all this garbage. I was just reading, so I, I love my dog. He's like my son. I don't have kids, right? And I was just reading a statistic. I don't know if this is accurate, but I just read it. One of two dogs die of cancer. You know, what are dogs consuming? They're consuming processed meat. That's what all the consuming. worst kind of meat as well. The, the meat that's scraped off the bottom of the slaughterhouse floor covered in goodness knows what. Exactly. And that to me was, you know, jarring. And I thought, okay, what can I do to, you know, help my dog? I actually invested in a um, plant-based dog food company called Wild Earth. Yeah. So, um, and that's what I feed them. But, it, you know, it just broke, broke my heart. I was like, man. It is. And there's, um, there's so much suffering that goes on from uh, companion animals, cats and dogs. And they also, the amount of, uh, you know, going into talking about the climate crisis, animal foods account for a huge amount of emissions. I think all the dogs and cats in America, if you put all the uh, the emissions together, it's like the size of a small country um, that the dog and cat food produces. And so getting animals, our companion animals switching over, particularly dogs, the jury is still out a bit on whether cats can eat a synthesized diet and synthesized uh, nutrients dogs can certainly thrive on a vegan diet i think the oldest dog in the world was vegan um, is that right yeah the oldest oh, wow. dog in the world the guinness book of records was well, a how vegan old was dog. the dog must have been quite a small dog Bramble is a vegetarian, vegan eating dog who lived in the UK and he held the Guinness Book of Records for the oldest dog in the world. He was 189. Wait, what? No, no, in dog years. No, dog years. (laughs) (laughs) 27. So 189 in human years. 27 in And he he wasn't a small dog, huh? He was not a small dog. He was a border he, collie. He wasn't like a, you know, because, wow, yeah. that's unbelievable. Yeah. And he lived on a diet of vegetables, organic vegetables, lentils and rice. And he exercised a lot. <laughs> wow, that is just incredible. Sorry, my, my mistake. She exercised a lot. She, she was female. Was she? Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's incredible. And I mean, this is what's so exciting about the space that we're kind of, you know, we're talking about is, you know, human beings for most of our evolution and our, our, our existence on this planet, you know, 200,000 years of modern humans, we actually have eaten a, a plant predominant diet. And there's this narrative that, you know, primitive humans ate huge amounts of meat and that we've got incisors and, you know, <laughs> yeah, what's no, canines. It's no. absolute nonsense. And, and what's exciting and wonderful about the internet is that, you know, for all its negatives, the benefits are that we're able to disseminate this information. And, you know, it's great to see people like yourself, actors like yourself, putting this information out there. Do you ever feel a sense of responsibility personally? And do you feel like more celebrities who are vegan, such as you, need to be speaking about it more, not just for the climate crisis, but of course, also the abhorrent cruelty that's going on every you day? You know, I, I do. And I kind of have a kind of simplistic view about it. I really believe, and I don't mean to like, you know, sound condescending, but I do think the next generation is influenced by trends. It's cool to be, you know, a climate activist. Like it's cool to say, you know, I think we have to make it cool to be vegan or or just use it, let's use the word plant-based because people don't like the word vegan for whatever reason. But let's just say it's cool. You know, I do think that humans have a responsibility to be plant-based at this point. I really do based on sheer population and and just facts. Um, And I think it's a responsibility of people who have a certain amount of influence um, and a certain amount of followers, whether it's social media or, or, you know, just a a platform of, of, of any kind. It's important to influence the next generation. And so a lot of times people will say like, why do you have to shove this information down my throat? And I'm like, I'm doing it because I'm hoping that the next generation looks at me and says, oh, I want to do that. You know, that I feel that it's my responsibility. I really do. 
Isn't it interesting when people say to us, you're shoving your vegan thing down our throats, but yet when we're driving down the freeway, <laughs> every billboard, every magazine cover we open, every radio oh, right. ad, every TV ad, it's right. meat, 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 meat. So if anyone is actually shoving anything down anyone's throat across human society, it's the meat industry, I mean, it's right? It's so crazy. I was living, I lived in Georgia for eight years and I would go down these the highway and I would see these billboards for Chick-fil-A and they were so tragic to me. It was this... The, the joke was that they were, there were cows that were writing the Chick-fil-A billboard saying, eat more chicken, don't eat us. And, and, wow. and, and like, that's the gag. Like the gag is like, oh, um, don't kill the cows, kill the chickens. Ha ha ha. The cows are fighting. for. And I'm just thinking to myself, how is this appetizing? How does this make me want to buy chick? Like to me, I just saw it's just so insane to me, the, the disassociation that, people and corporations have with sentient beings. And I got to tell you, having a dog really cemented my perspective. You know, my dog has a soul. And I know we all feel this way about our pets. And I'm not, and I'm not saying anything special, but for, I'm just going to speak from my perspective. He has a we soul. We all think, our, think of our children yeah, that way. Yeah, <laughs> but, but no, but he has a soul. You know, he's, I see him. He's very sensitive. He, we have a connection. We communicate. And dogs are, uh, pigs are just as intelligent as dogs, if not more. I don't understand how I could be viewed as a, a, a psychopath if I were to eat a dog. And yet, if I were to eat a pig, I'm just a normal guy. And if I say, hey, I don't eat bacon or I don't eat pig, I'm looked at as a pariah. I just don't, I don't understand the logic. It yeah. doesn't well, work for me. Dr. Melanie Joy, are you familiar with her work? No. Dr. Melanie Joy, you'll absolutely love. She is an incredible woman. Uh, she's from the US and she coined the term carnism. A veganism oh, is the counterculture. Oh, yeah, yeah. She wrote Love Dog, Eat Pig, Wear Cows. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so the, re the answer to your question is carnism that we have as children, as we as humans, have grown up in this culture where we are taught that eating animals is normal natural and necessary right that it's i always get the ends wrong sorry if i go i've got it wrong <laughs> i need to commit that stuff to memory normal natural ne necessary normal needed necessary one of those one of those three and the point is is that as children we are conditioned to believe that we have to consume animals that it's essential to our survival or we'll die that's how what i was taught as a child if I knew what I know now as a child, I would never have touched animals or consumed animals in any way. But we are programmed really through social conditioning and everyone eats meat because everyone else eats meat. It is a cultural norm and condition. In France, they eat horses. In some parts of China, they eat dogs. We wouldn't dream of doing that. And so this, this cognitive dissonance that you talked about, like the only difference is our perception. You get those images on social media where you see a pig on this side and a dog on that side and there's a line in the middle. And you say to yourself, well, what is the difference? And for me, that was the light bulb moment. What is the difference between a dog and a cat or a pig and a cow and a chicken? Nothing. Absolutely. My, my, my wife actually commissioned a, uh, an, a painter to paint a photo of a, a photo, to paint a, a, a drawing, a picture, a painting, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> can't articulate. Of It's our dog, a half, and then the other half is a cow. Obviously, there's a difference, but it's the, it's sort of indiscernible in many ways. It's just like a slight variation in appearance because we always joke that he looks like a baby cow. That to me is the definition of speciesism, right? It's like, it's like you, 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 speciesism is a real thing. And, and that is something that people are just, people don't even know that word. And it's, uh, it's, it's as real as any other type of prejudice.
It absolutely is. And, and I think that for me, the crux of it is people are not taught to see animals as individuals. They don't see animals as persons. Animals don't, uh, they aren't afforded personhood, right? But what does it mean to be a person, to think, to feel, to dream, to sleep, to decide, to, to be uh, an autonomous being? Animals dream and see the world in all the ways that we do with all the beautiful colors, some of it much more in much more complex ways than we do. You know, cats and dogs dream like we do. Pigs dream like we do. They have lungs and kidneys and hearts and blood and hair and eyes and tongues and everything that we do. We are their cousins. I mean, in fact, actually, when you look at the DNA of the mammals on this planet, we all share like so much of the DNA. In fact, we could say that there are cousins, <laughs> distant, Absolutely. but there Absolutely. are cousins. Absolutely. And isn't it insane when you suddenly realize that as a human beings, when we awaken from this kind of carnist dream or nightmare, you might call it, it can be a bit alarming. And, and so I want to ask, like, when you first started realizing all this stuff, did you have that sort of angry vegan phase? Um, I'm still in it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, you know, it's not, it's, it's, I don't know about you, but there, it, it, it keeps me up at night. I'm still at that phase where I don't, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm sad. I mean, even just hearing you, say, you know, they have lungs and they have hearts and they have, and they have hair and they have eyes. I, I'm sad. I'm just, I, I really, I think about all of the, the factories and I think about the lives that these poor, I mean, if you, you don't even want to call them lives, they're just in these like cages suffering and then they're killed, they're tortured and killed. I just, it makes me lose faith in 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 humanity honestly and i know that sounds like really dire but it's I just appreciate your honesty yeah I, I'm, after, I'm asked this question often. People say to me, Robbie, with all the work that you do and all the videos you see and all the stuff, because we get sent a lot of undercover investigation, how do you remain hopeful and positive? Um, and I just remind people, as long as there are good people in this world who love animals and, and, and want to build meaningful care with animals and to, sh and to build a world where we share this planet with all the other earthlings, there's always going to be hope. And I think we are unfortunately going through a very dark phase in our evolution as a species. Again, another thing I talk about a lot on this podcast is I personally believe humans should be reclassified as an invasive parasitic species. I because we agree. are. Well, we're the only, we if, if you kind of look at the earth, right, from like a, like a, like a, you know, let's say we're in outer space and we're looking at earth, we're really the only species that is a cancer on the earth and we're destroying it. And I agree with you. Um, I, I know that sounds so, you know, Dark. it really does, but it's, but really, I mean, we are, we're the only species that is kind of going against nature. But we also have the possibility and the power and the creativity to completely turn things around. 100 percent. And that's what's so frustrating, right? Exactly. We have all this potential. The technology, the 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 all the information, um, we have the free will. We can really turn this around just like that, which is the part that frustrates me the most, I think. Our public health is in peril at the hands of the factory farming system. Factory farms are a breeding ground for disease, including emerging pathogens and virulent strains of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warns three in four emerging human diseases come from animals, and the methods used in factory farms are already recognized as important risk factors for zoonotic outbreaks, making the next pandemic more likely. The World Health Organization has labeled processed meat as a carcinogen, 
In the United States, diet-related diseases, including heart disease and diabetes, remain the top cause of death. In fact, factory farming pollution is an environmental injustice destroying the health of our communities. According to the EPA, 53% of Americans rely on drinking water that goes all but unprotected from agricultural waste. Imagine this. Every 800,000 pigs produce the same amount of waste as all of the people living in Austin, Texas. Yet Austin, Texas has a complex sewage system. Pig waste on farms is pooled in lagoons that seep into groundwater. It is sometimes dispersed into the air, spreading noxious fumes. The waste, containing more than 150 types of pathogens, is more than a nuisance. It's a public health nightmare. The factory farm food system neither feeds the world nor nourishes the nation, and it fails neighboring communities. And it fails our farmers and workers. The average family farmer has seen more than one million farms shut down in their lifetime. In 1992, the small family farmer produced 50% of the nation's food. Today, the small family farmer produces a quarter of the nation's food, and they have to rely on off-farm income to earn a living wage. Historically, this loss of land most deeply burdens farmers of color. In 1910, 14% of farmers were black. Today, 1.4% of farmers are black, and they earn 92% less income. In the U.S., serious slaughterhouse injuries, which may require hospitalization or amputation, occur every two days. Chronic pain from repeated motion is near universal. Some, some of the ways in which we can turn things around is with influence. And over the years, you've engaged with some celebrities about the plant-based diets. You've responded to the likes of like Cardi B. Are you, you know, uh, engaged with the likes of Vice President Kamala Harris? Have any of these people come back to you? Has there been any kind of like back and forth? You know, have you had any sort of high-profile celebrities talk to you about being vegan or plant-based? I, I have interacted a little bit with Cory Booker's campaign. If you could talk about your personal decision to be a vegan, which really brings together the issue of the environment and personal health. Listen, my, my personal decision is to try every day to be a better living the values in which I hold. And so my veganism is a much better way to accord myself with, the, with my values. But I want to be clear with you that, because I don't want this to be a holier-than-thou moment, I don't know where the suit I'm wearing was made. And fast fashion is, is injustice. It is injustice. You know, I, these are vegan shoes, so I'm trying to be consistent with, with things. So for me, all of us have to do a better job in, in living in accordance with what our values are. I don't want to preach to people what our values are, but I know what corporate animal agriculture, not the, the, the farm heritage, the independent family farmers that I've met all around this country, but massive corporate animal agriculture is destroying the environment. What's happening to animals is something of America. In fact, they, they're passing these things called ag-gag laws, which I know you've heard of, where they're trying to block Americans from actually knowing what's happening to animals. That's why those CAFOs are usually covered so you can't see in and the misery and the suffering going on with animals. And so for me, from everything from my health, the leading cause of death for black men is preventable diseases. As Ron Finley, this great, he's a TED Talk, black man in South Central Los Angeles, he has this great TED Talk, you should watch it, where he says, in South Central, we got drive-bys and drive-throughs. And the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. And so, and so I, I'm trying to do my best to live my values. I fail every day, but I want to get better and better and better, to be more conscious about the decisions I'm making. And in a capitalist society, 
you vote every day with your dollars. And, and, and so, and so my, my, my veganism is something I'm happy to talk about and, and, and about the reasons why. Um, but I want to, I want to tell you this, Martin Luther King said it more eloquently than I could ever say it. He goes, I can pass, I can't pass laws to make you love me, but I can pass laws to stop you from lynching me. Uh, I can't pass laws uh, uh, to change your heart, but I can pass laws to restrain the heartless. And so I may not, I may not want to force my dietary habits on everybody here, but if I'm your president, I'm going to stop us subsidizing through our ag bills, the corporate animal agriculture that ultimately is hurting our country. And, and, and I haven't heard another presidential candidate that wants to talk about these issues. I know Corey's a vegan and he uh, introduced an act that um, I think is very important. Um, I know him and uh, I believe Elizabeth Warren are really trying to eliminate factory farming, which would be incredible. Um, yeah, Cardi B. That was just, I, I wasn't expecting a response. I just sort of, uh, I saw, I don't know why, I, I don't know. Oh, I think I saw it because I was on Twitter and I saw maybe on plant-based news or something, someone tweeted like Cardi B, you know, and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll respond to her. There's individuals that'll go and name, but there's people that, you know, I've, I've prolific uh, athletes who I have, you know, sort of shown game changers to, for example, and they're like, you know, they've, they've changed their lifestyle, but I'm not sure they're, they're public about it. So I won't, I won't out sure. them, but um, you know, things like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come out of the vegan closet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, because I think they don't want, you know, in the event that they don't stick to it, they don't want to come out and then look hypocritical. So that's a really interesting point as well. So one of my questions is about accountability. You know, veganism is a lifestyle. It's a philosophy. It's not a religion, even though some people like to call us heretics and uh, all these other names. But it is a philosophy because the point is, is that the reason that we have created, well, create, veganism was created is to draw a moral baseline to say, you know, as a person who's adopting this lifestyle, I will not consume anything from an animal to adhere to this idea that animals shouldn't be exploited or abused for anything, their skin, their fur, their feathers, etc. But there is a narrative out there that pushes this idea of part-time veganism or I'll be vegan occasionally. Personally, I think that part-time veganism is just vegetarianism or omnivorous eating, right? Or flexitarianism or reducitarianism. How important do you think it is to try to preserve the meaning so that it doesn't get watered down or co-opted and then end up losing all its meaning completely? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one because um, I, I also want to, I mean, and, and there's different, I'm sure, philosophies and approaches to this, but I, I also would like to give people the opportunity to reduce, right? Or, or to, 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 to be perhaps, you know, some people are gradual. Some people don't quit smoking immediately. They need to have some, you know, Nicorette or I don't know, whatever. They need to smoke one cigarette a week. I, of course, it would be great if everyone could just say, okay, boom, I'm going vegan. There's no need for this. Great. But I also want people to understand that they can take it slowly, I guess. And I know that sounds like a little bit, I, I'm not trying to diminish of course, veganism is veganism, but I, I also want to welcome people with open arms because we have to. I think it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. Yeah, it really is. I think it's for a lot of people, it isn't easy. Some people adopt a lifestyle just like that and they pick it up, they watch a film and the next minute they're done, you know, but not everyone can afford to shop in Whole Foods. Not everyone can afford to buy all the fancy vegan meat products. Uh, and sometimes in some parts of the US, there's what we call, you know, food racism or food, food deserts where people have a big, due to various things like redlining, 
people don't have access to fresh produce. And so the only thing available to them often is very heavily processed, pre-packaged foods. Absolutely. Um, and it can be very difficult to switch oh, yeah. to a plant-predominant diet. I'm, I'm about to go do a project in, uh, in Louisiana, in, 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 but deep Louisiana, and I've actually shot something there before. And I got to tell you, I had to drive like 15 miles to, to go to this one store that had fresh some you know i'm not i'm not i'm not saying louisiana is all like i'm just saying it could be any state could be where i'm from in the middle of you know any any state in america has somewhere where there's this sort of area where it's sort of like you know you, you processed meat is really the the easiest and most economic affordable food it was tough and i gotta tell you if i didn't have that extra time that extra money and you know whatever it would have been a little bit tough for me to get to have a healthy vegan lifestyle of course i could have eaten you know potato chips all day but you know that's not gonna work so this is the neighborhood I grew up in, right in Ferguson. A friend of mine was actually shot in his driveway right there. There's a fantastic film called They're Trying to Kill Us. Um, and listeners, if you haven't watched it, please do check it out. It's by an amazing vegan advocate called John Lewis. And this film goes into a lot of detail about these issues and about how many parts in the US, and it's particularly bad in the US, where access to fresh, fresh produce often is, is inaccessible, but often by design, they believe, because of the way the, the system is built, the food system is built. People who are sick or poop people who are eating processed foods, and I think a lot of people who watch What the Health, What the Health draw the, drew the parallels between the meat industry, so the, the animal agriculture industries and the pharmaceutical industries, and that many of the people who are at the top of both of these kind of megaliths of organizations and industries, they all know each other and they're all in bed together. And when people who are sick and unwell, they're having to rely on huge amounts of medications for their obesity, their type 2 diabetes, their heart disease, and the list goes on and on. They're also eating the foods that are causing these illnesses that are essentially maintaining the status quo for multi-billion pound pharmaceutical industries. Now, of course, I don't want to push a narrative that big pharma this and big pharma that. There are a lot of good people in the pharmaceutical industry trying to earn a good living, save lives, and, you know, make sure that many people can live a lot longer, be pain-free. You know, I'm, I'm not certainly against modern medicine. I think there is a place for it. But it's such a powerful industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and so is the animal agriculture industry. You put drugs in the communities, put guns in the communities, you put disease in the communities, put poor food in the communities. All these things are designed to shorten your life expectancy. It's by design. It is not accidental that this is what's in the hood and this is what's over there. There's actually an active hand in making sure that we are living like this. It's all about control, money, and survival to them. Your death is not an expense to them, it's an expense to you. They're trying to make money from us, even if it's at the expense of killing us. You just die slow, your family just watches you die. The alcohol industry, fast food industries, tobacco industries target communities of color. Your health is not their main priority. They try to keep you sick. We are in a state of emergency when it comes to our health. Keeping people sick is very lucrative. Now you want pills. Now you want dialysis. Now you want medicine. You go into the hospital on a regular to see your doctor. Everybody's getting paid except you. Big pharma and pharmaceutical companies are making billions of dollars off of all of us. As long as they can make that dollar, they don't care if you live or die. It's something about being here that's making black people sick. Everybody's getting paid, except you. You hurt. There are more dangerous and harmful chemicals and products made for women of color. It absolutely is a crisis. They don't make a dime if you're healthy. 
It's kind of like a dope gang. It is the dope gang. It's just a bigger gangster. The mob boss. Look at the hidden hand. You see that government is feeding the crisis. The Fed wrong knowledge sized all the wrong food. It's about money over people's health. If you can control a population's access to food, you can control the person. Only about 8% of African Americans even live in communities that have a grocery store in them. Because the deep root problem is the food. Because poor diets kill more brothers than pistols. You know, we fighting for our lives. That's like Michael Bick's pit bulls. As black men, we're dying off so quickly in so many ways. It's here, pocketed in our communities. We don't want a healthy population. That is injustice, plain and simple. The powers that be are making that money at the top, they trying to kill us. Do you ever sometimes look at the monster of factory farming and ever feel a bit hopeless about it? Or do you feel like we'll see a day where it'll totally disappear? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, the question, unfortunately, it's funny. I, I, I always think technology emerges from necessity, you know, or, or profit. I, I do think it's not sustainable. And so it's just a matter of how soon will it be in the next 30 years? Will it be in 100 years? I, I don't know. In five years? I, I really don't know. Um, I don't feel hopeful that it's going to be in the next decade, unfortunately. I wish I, I wish it was. But I do think eventually it will cease to exist. It's not for any reason other than the fact that it's just simply not sustainable, whether it's due to a, another pandemic uh, whether it's due to, you know, I mean, who, who knows? Lab, maybe lab-grown meat will take over and the companies will say, oh, it's a hell of a lot cheaper. So we're going to do this now because it's cheaper. Today's industrial food system hides the lives and suffering of farmed animals. It teaches people that some animals are to be eaten and others are to be loved. It creates a worldview that says the exploitation of farmed animals is necessary to nourish people. It reinforces hierarchies that separate people from other animals and from each other. The truth that all animals are feeling and thinking beings worthy of our love must replace the lie that draws a line between humans and other animals. For people, animals, and the planet, now is the time to end factory farming and replace our factory farm food system. We must make the choice to nourish everyone at no one's expense. Together, we can build a just and compassionate food system for people, other animals, and our shared environment. We can replace exploitation with sanctuary. It's great to see more of this conversation being pushed in through popular culture. There was a recent film called Don't Look Up with Leonardo DiCaprio. Did you, <laughs> did you watch it yet? Yeah, I did. <laughs> what did you think uh, of the portrayal of what could be the climate crisis, could be animal agriculture? It's kind of a bit like a, a metaphor, really, a sort of a, a very clever way of talking about how humanity have a collective denial about the problem, which is, of course, the asteroid. This is not real. This is not real, this is not real. This isn't happening. Kate, uh, tell me this isn't really happening. I hear there's uh, something you don't like the looks of. We discovered a very large comet. Oh, good for you. It's headed directly towards Earth. This comet is what we call a planet killer. At this exact moment, I say we sit tight and assess. Sit tight and assess? Sit tight. And then assess. The sit tight part comes first, then you gotta digest it. 
That's the assessment period. What did you think of the way that film told the story? Um, I, I, we, 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 were, we were laughing. It was, uh, I, I'm a big Adam McKay, uh, you know, Vice and The Big Short. I mean, I guess it could be ignorance of anything, right? It could be, you know, this in particular is, is uh, the, the, the climate crisis or who knows what. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, it's, it, it's sort of a caricature-y, in a way, it's so over the top, right? The movie, yeah. it's just so absurd. But then you're kind of, you know, as you're watching it, you're like, well, is it like if there was an asteroid coming, truly, if there was something coming for the Earth, do you think there would be a, a, a sect of individuals who would start a conspiracy online to say that it's actually not there and come up with a variety of excuses that are somewhat plausible? Because I see that happen uh, uh, all the time. And, uh, and we all do, you know, misinformation spread left and right. So it was funny, but scary. It was funny, but scary and alarming watching that film. This is the worst news in the history of humanity. He just blew us off. What are we going to do? We have to release the information. So we just leak it. Our guests today have made a pretty big discovery in space. How big is this thing going? I can't destroy my ex-wife's house. Is that possible? <laughs> There's a 100% chance that we're all going to die. Okay. Hey. Hey. Well, the handsome astronomer can come back anytime, but the yelling lady, mm, not so much. Not so much. We're going to get the news out there one way or another. It's real and it's coming. FBI! Jesus Christ, you could have just called me. This comet contains $30 trillion worth of material. What do trillions of dollars matter if we're all going to die? Oh, oh no, this what is if we're rich? You guys discovered a comet? I have a tattoo of a shooting star on my back. Oh, that's that's terrific. This is obviously such a pressing issue. It's going to make COVID-19 look like a walk in the park, frankly. It's already happening in many parts of the world with, you know, catastrophic changes in the in the weather patterns, rivers, droughts, forest fires, Australia, you know, Brazil. In your opinion, like your experience and, you know, you, you seem like someone who's done a lot of reading and you absorb a lot of information. What do you think? Where do you think the responsibility lies? Should it be all on us as individuals? Or do you feel like governments and big industry really needs to be pulling their finger out more? Because we're, we are up against the clock. We've passed all the planetary boundaries. You know, more than 100 years ago, we were warned by scientists here in London in the early late 1800s that the Industrial Revolution would have seismic damage to our planet but we don't seem to be listening and it's a hundred years later. Mm. Well, you know, it's, it's disappointing when people like Joe Biden, for example, just passed this agriculture, you know, stimulus, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, forgive me. I don't know the exact uh, verbiage, but you know, some, some sort of a bill. He, I think he gave them a billion dollars to lower Pro- the cost. Propping of them up basically. Yeah. Essentially propping them up. And that's our tax dollars, my tax dollars, um, and any Americans tax dollars. And it's, 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 disappointing. I, you know, I, I I voted for Joe Biden and it would be nice for a politician to not worry for once about their reelection chances or what, uh, you know, the, the polling numbers are going to say and just do the right thing. It would be really great to have someone step up, a leader step up and say, you know, hey, I, I understand this may not be the general public's opinion, but I something needs to change here. Unfortunately, there have not been, there has not been any uh, anyone really willing to do that at the top of the ladder. Uh, not that I've, uh, to my knowledge, 
and I do think, um, unfortunately, animal rights activists, plant-based vegans, uh, we are the minority at this point. We have some influence, but, you know, I mean, it's even Joaquin Phoenix, you know, when he gave that speech at the Oscars, uh, which I thought was so beautiful, you know, a lot of people mocked him, you know, and, and, and it was just, it's a shame, you know, it's really a shame because you, you have actors and uh, accepting awards and talking about all sorts of social issues, every type of, you know, movement, and they're applauded. Uh, yet Joaquin Phoenix was sort of looked at as silly, silly Crazy. vegan. <laughs> right. Because the asteroid doesn't exist, right? It's not right. there. It's not exactly. coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So exactly. no matter what, what we say, no matter how much we shout, the people out there, they don't believe it's happening. And I think that comes down to it. It goes about the, what I was saying about the existential crisis. And one of my friends, my new friends, Matthew Schreibman, the founder of Aim High Earth, he talks about the nature crisis. And he says that the climate crisis is an existential crisis. It's outside. It's it's over there. It doesn't seem to be anything to do with me as an individual. And the reason why for the last hundred years it's been pretty much unspoken about it's been an unspoken thing is because of, you know, the parodies of those kinds of scientists in lookup, not media trained, they're not science communicators, they don't know how to communicate the problem. And so for more than a century, the problem hasn't been effectively communicated to the public and industry has been so powerful at being able to disrupt the conventional narrative in their favor, so that the narrative around money and wealth towards, you know, oil and gas and fracking and all these kind of things has always been in their favor because they've held all the power and all the, the screens and all the kind of airwaves really in every way really over the last hundred years and so this has been the problem and now with social media in the last decade the message people like Greta Thunberg the message is finally getting through because young people with their abilities to use technology and to create pervasive evocative messages are finally getting through to people but the big question is it, is it too late? There's a great documentary on Netflix called Breaking Boundaries with David Attenborough. And it talks about the planetary boundaries. And he talks in great detail about all these key boundaries that we have gone way past. The science is clear and has been communicated for the past 30 years. And still, we're not moving in the right direction. I don't get depressed. I get angry. What are the systems that determine the state of the planet? This is about us. It is about our future. All is not well with our planet. As we increase our pressures on Earth, we are now crossing irreversible tipping points. Nature is being degraded at a rate and a scale that is unprecedented. When we emit CO2, about a third has ended up in the ocean. There's no sign of any wildlife at all. Based on the seven and a half million deaths, we have already crossed the boundary as far as aerosols are concerned. As we manipulate the planet's climate, we're literally playing with fire. Are we concerned about fighting the climate crisis? The window is still open for us to have a future for humanity. We still have a chance. What we do between 2020 and 2030 it will be the decisive decade for humanity's future on Earth. Human health, animal health, and environmental health, the three are so much linked. We've covered the whole planet with knowledge. The future is not determined. The future is in our hands. It's a remarkable time to be alive. 
you may never look at the world in the same way again. We're now in the zone of mitigation. We, we can't turn the clock back, but we need to mitigate. We obviously talked about a lot in the last 45 minutes. There's a lot of different subjects, which you could probably go down lots of different rabbit holes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and an hour is not enough with you. And I'd love <laughs> to hopefully do a, an episode two at some point in the future with uh, you. I would love that, yeah. But, but what is a message? Have you got a message for all your followers and anyone who's watching this who, who may feel a bit hopeless about the future? But like, what keeps you personally positive? How do you get out of bed in the morning and keep operating in this world and doing your job? Are there some things that you personally love to look at or look to, even some simple things that just keep mm -hmm. you going? Uh, well, first of all, people like you, really. Um, you know, it, it, you, it, people that can articulate themselves um, in a way uh, I learn, I'm, I'm learning every day. I try to try to be very selective about who I um, listen to and who I'm influenced by. I think uh, that it keeps me going, um, learning new information every day. And, you know, I mean, look, I um, am more and more as I get older. <laughs> I, I know this is sounds so cliche, but I try to connect to, to nature again. I try to sort of connect to whether it's an animal, uh, a bird, uh, you know, I, I really, I really think we need to just slow down a little bit, maybe take some time to really sit with ourselves. Information is moving so quickly. We're consuming so much where we become so disassociated with, with everything. Um, we just live in these hustle bustle, big cities and it's all survival, survival. And, uh, if you have the, the, the leisure, uh, if you, if you're in a position where you can slow down, I think it's important. I try to meditate every day. I do transcendental meditation. It helps me just slow down a little bit. That keeps me going, believe it or not, just doing the opposite, slowing down, taking a beat, being kind to myself. I often become so critical of myself. So I think those are some very, very simple things. Um, I don't know if I, uh, if I some really good articulated advice that. <laughs> no, you <laughs> did. It's such good advice. You know, we're, we're overloaded with information. We're now living in the information age, though sometimes I like to call it the misinformation age. But anyway, we won't go there. But it is a time of, of, of information. And we are personally all overloaded and oversaturated to the point where it is causing us you know, mental health problems on a gargantuan scale. And it is important to unplug and meditation and mindfulness are ancient practices that are tried and tested for millennia. And I really encourage anyone who is struggling, as you said, to practice something that takes you away from technology on the daily because it's so vital. Technology is incredible. It connects us. We wouldn't be having this amazing conversation without it. But it, it is it is our bodies. You know, we are of the earth, you know, but technology is kind of this other thing that in many ways is not compatible with our biology. But we will evolve along with it. But again, that's a, a conversation for another time. Before I let you go, I would love to hear a little bit more about your your project, Brothers Bond Bourbon, with your with your co-star. Yeah, is it, yeah. is it Ian? Or do you say Ian or Ian? Ian, 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 Ian yeah. Soma. Ian Summerholder, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do want to talk about bourbon. I love bourbon. Why did you go bourbon? Why'd you do bourbon? Why'd so you choose So bourbon, that? Paul and I love bourbon. Yeah. And the boys bonded over bourbon on the show. On screen, Paul and I bonded over bourbon. Off screen, Paul likes to remind me it's the only way that he could tolerate me. <laughs> um, but we had this bond over this amazing liquid. I'm from Louisiana. We take it very seriously. We name streets after bourbon. Yeah. Um, but Paul was from Europe, his, fam his family's from Europe, he's from the East Coast, and he moved down to Atlanta, and all of a sudden, 
he's exposed to so much of this great brown liquor called mm. bourbon. And we just, we loved it. What about Brothers Bond? Is that just from, is it a tie-in, obviously? It's clearly a nod to our characters. Yeah. Love to hear more about it. It looks like an amazing project, really beautiful photography. And yeah, tell us more Thank about you. it. Yeah, in a nutshell, you know, uh, we did a show called The Vampire Diaries and, and we drank bourbon on the show. Um, we were brothers who were fighting over the same girl that we were both madly in love with. Dear Diary, today will be different. It has to be. I will smile and it will be believable. I shouldn't have come home. I know the risk, but I had no choice. Damon. Hello, brother. I'm Elena. I'm Stefan. His name is Stefan Salvatore. I have to know her. You must be Elena. I'm Damon, Stefan's brother. You're the mystery guy, and I like that. But with mystery comes secrets. How can I deny what's right in front of me? Someone who never grows old, never gets hurt. Girls bitten, bodies drained of blood. You know, one of the things we were kind of known for is uh, um, drinking bourbon. And so Ian and I, you know, we, we like to say we bonded on screen over bourbon and we bonded off screen over bourbon. That was sort of like our ritual. You know, we would, you know, finish shooting, have a bourbon. And it just sort of, you know, we were shooting in the South and we sort of just both fell in love with the spirit. And um, once the show ended and uh, during the pandemic, really, we've been talking about doing it for a decade. But then, you know, the pandemic happened and we sort of said, OK, well, we got nothing better to do. Let's put this thing together. We put this thing together and. And, um, and voila, here you are, Brothers Bomb Bourbon. And um, it's delicious. And, you know, we're, it's been, it's been, a, I've never done anything like it. What goes into a bourbon though, before, for those that might not know, because it's a, it's a strict, it's, it's a, a bourbon is a, an, an American drink, it, right? Yeah, a bourbon, exactly. It is a bourbon. There's whiskeys, right? But, uh, and a bourbon is a whiskey, but a bourbon can only be made in America. And a bourbon is comprised of corn, uh, rye, wheat and then some people use barley so sometimes it's a three grain or a four grain and you age it in uh oak and oak barrels and uh it's it's a hundred it's vegan um there's no uh, you know animal products and and it's um it's just grains it's fermented grains uh done in a very particular fashion and you take those grains and you create what is called a mash bill um and our bourbon is aged four years there you have it and we have you know different proofs right now we have only one type of bourbon it's an 80 proof and now we have a cast strength coming out that's like 118 proof which is super uh, strong, but some people like that. We have a rye that we're going to do, which is a, just a higher rye percentage. So, you know, we have different iterations of Brothers Bond. It's been an incredible experience, uh, really a learning experience. I, I didn't know much about this world. Uh, I just consumed the bourbon and enjoyed it. So it, it really is a, an art and a craft and how you make it. And, um, you know, I've really learned to sort of appreciate the spirit uh, very much so. Amazing. Well, we'll put the links to that in the show notes so people who do love bourbon can go check yeah, it out. Thank you. It'll be coming to the UK this year. So, yeah. Before I let you go, Paul, I always like to ask my guests this one final question. If it, you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, obviously you don't eat the pig because you're a vegan. And if anyone's heard this podcast, you know what's coming next. If I could give you one vegan dish, one music album and one book, what would you take with you? Oof. One vegan dish. Let me think about this. I know this sounds boring to some, but I just love it. I would say an avocado sushi roll. 
It's just phenomenal. I just love if it's really good avocado, it's mm-hmm. I love it uh, with a little bit of uh, uh, soy soy sauce. Um, so I would say that. And then uh, one book, you know, my favorite book, and it's it's sort of a, a, a dark book, but I love it, uh, is Catcher in the Rye. I wouldn't say it's dark, but you know, that was the book that I sort of, when I was a kid, just loved so much. And I, I reread it and I just love uh, the way he writes J.D. Salinger. So probably Catcher in the Rye. And then a music album. Uh, you know, I mean, the thing about if you're stuck on an island, right, you're, you're going to be listening to that over and over. And I think new age sort of modern day music can get very old very quickly. So I would go with a classic, you know, and I mean like a real classic, like, you know, stuck with like, you know, Mozart or Beethoven, you know, something that sort of can consistently play and and I won't get sick of it after God knows how many years. (laughs) (laughs) And uplift you. Mr. Paul Wesley, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. An hour absolutely flew by and uh, it was great pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, fashion, animals, lifestyle, and everything in between.